What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Modern Day Sniper Podcast. And um, today I am flying uh, solo. Phil is um, Phil's up in Alaska for the Christmas holiday. And I made a trip over to uh, the west side of the mountains of Washington State to visit my buddy Tom Ryder. Uh, that was last week's episode. And today I'm over here at American Rifle Company with Mr. Ted Courageous. And um, you guys have, if you guys have seen our modern day rifleman summit you saw ted on that and um, we're going to do quite a bit of uh quite a bit of work with american rifle company in the coming months and years and uh, i always like talking to you ted i always learn something every time we have a conversation so welcome back to the show thank you very much and welcome people of earth (laughs) stuffing our faces with blueberries yeah i like blueberries last time we hung out together on the range you brought a thing of strawberries out you like berries Generally, yeah. <laughs> You're a pretty healthy guy. I don't know about that, but... Just ate two pieces of pizza for lunch. I know. And a salad. So you kind of corrected course with the salad. <laughs> but I snuck a donut on the way here. I'm <laughs> with the uh, so how long have you guys been in the shop? Since May. Since May. So uh, new May shop. 2021, yeah. New space. Um A lot of room for expansion. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of room. That's, that's awesome. And... Obviously, you guys are doing really cool stuff. Um, everything that you guys produce at American Rifle Company has always impressed me. The majority of the Try. actions I shoot are American Rifle Company actions. Um, I've got one of the first generation mousing fields that I absolutely love. And um, I, I was just talking to, to Justin. He was asking me, you know, what, what I like. And my favorite action, I think, from you guys is, is the nucleus at this point. <laughs> I shoot that more often than anything, really. Um, it's been a while since I felt felt a nucleus, and I got to feel one. Well, I can feel one whenever I want, right? They're, they're just upstairs. But um, they are pretty good nowadays. I I just enjoy I enjoy the 60-degree throw. It's just it's very solid. Um, My favorite is the Archimedes. I like the Archimedes as well. Because from the, from the start, the focus has always been, like when this whole thing started, back, like the first time I ever started designing guns was back in 2003. Wanted to make Mauser 98s. And uh, I don't know if I told you guys about Fred Wells last time we talked. I think you did. I think yeah. in, in the in the Rifleman interview we did. Yeah. So that was back, that was the summer of 1993. I made a, this old guy, Fred Wells, who was making Mausers from scratch. And that's when I knew, I want, uh, A, I like manufacturing, B, uh, it's time to move into mechanical engineering. At the time, it was construction engineering and management, which led to a very fun, deviant summer in Southern California when I was 19. It was a good time. But... Uh, yeah, but so he, Fred was in Prescott. I went to the Grand Canyon with somebody and stopped it in Prescott to visit Fred. I knocked on his door at one o'clock in the morning, welcomed me with open arms, redirected me right then and there. He didn't know it, but towards, you know, mechanical and materials engineering. And then, uh, and back then, Fred had a long, long list of people who wanted his Mauser actions. He was, you know, coaxing Mauser 98s out of, you know, bars of steel with conventional equipment, no CNC. And then he, you know, people were paying 40, 50,000 bucks for these rifles back in 93. Right. And they were waiting, you know, four or five years for these things. 
So, yeah, eat the blueberries before I eat them all. <laughs> but uh, so that's what got it started. And, that, well, and that's really what got my interest in manufacturing and machine tools. Yeah, so the history of manufacturing and the history of guns on earth basically go hand in hand all the way back. That's true. Samuel Colt developed machine tools to make pistols. And um, so I was looking at, the, back in 93, or back in like 1990, you know, the mechanical engineering school at Purdue, they had a little machine shop. They had a sinking EDM, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, because I wanted, I had the stupid idea of cutting square pockets in the, <laughs> in the top of a double square bridge Mauser action, just because I thought you could do it like a felt scope mount that would just kind of plug uh, into oh, the okay, like you know you'd have these male squares plugging into female squares on top of the receiver. Okay, that was before I knew anything. <laughs> but but it, like then the question becomes okay, how do you do this with a rotating tool? And then you quickly realize well you can't, mm. not very well anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I, like it just I. I would do the deep dive into like different manufacturing technologies. And back then, also at uh, Purdue School of Mechanical Engineering, they had, uh, there was this little library where they had uh, a Thomas Register, which is, it's a big, uh, it's like an encyclopedia of these big green books. You know, it's like a set of encyclopedias, but they're these big green books. And this was before the internet. And uh, so anybody who's doing anything in industry, would be in these green books. Okay. Right. So you'd look them up by subject or, you know, you'd find machine tool manufacturers, you know, people that do turnkey systems for automation. It was a good way to find a job too. As an engineering student, like, because you could look through these, find people that were doing what you wanted to do mm. and, uh, and call them and say, hey, you know, I'm a student at Purdue and I, I dig what you're doing. Right. And, what a good opportunity. I'm going to go on a tangent here. There's going to be a lot of tangents. That's it's all good. The story of my That's life. That's what we're here to do. <laughs> right? The one big we're here to just tangent. have a conversation. But uh, if you're young, if you're a young person in school and you're an engineer, right, and you don't know what to do, I tell us to basically any young person doing anything, find something that inspires you. Find somebody who's doing something that like you're truly inspired by and tell them you'll work for free. Even if you have a college degree, don't worry about, you know, what you're going to get paid out of college. Knock on their door, say, hey, I like what you're doing. I want to work here and you don't have to pay me to do it. They're going to pay you, right? But like if you tell them that, if you if you let them know that you're a risk to them, right? Because you're new and your employees are always liabilities, right? But if you tell them that, hey, I just, you know, it's about the work for me. I don't even need the money. You might have to eat, but you'll figure that out. Right. Right. That's a good way to find work. That's what basically I've, that's what I did right after the summer of 1991 was basically that. It was like, hey, go knock on the door of a machine shop. Say, I don't care what the hell you pay me. They, legally, they had to pay me like, maybe it was like three seventy-five an hour back Whatever then, it was, minimum yeah. wage. And I'm like, I just want to learn how to do this. And uh, I did that twice. Once at a place called, uh, I think it was Howell Precision Tool. Uh, 
Dave Hanrahan Jr. and Sr. And Jr. was pretty cool. Sr. was scared to death of me. Like he thought I was going to hurt myself or hurt somebody else. <laughs> I don't know why. But uh, so that was kind of a weird dynamic there. So, but so I did that. Worked in machine shops in college while I was in school, like during the summer. And then uh, when I got out of school, when I graduated from Purdue, I knocked on Mark Darty's door at MDI Manufacturing. It was in Brick, New Jersey. He's in Lakewood now. Still a good friend. Uh, but I knocked on his door. It was a frozen January day in New Jersey. Half his workforce didn't show up. And I show, show up. And I'm like, hey, I got, you know, I just graduated from Purdue. I got an engineering degree. And uh, I just need to keep doing manufacturing. I got to learn more about it. And he's like, you showed up here on the frozen day. You don't care about money. And half my workforce didn't show up. He hired me like in five minutes. They didn't like no interview. No, it's like just the fact that, yeah. hey, I don't, I don't even need you to pay me. It's your desire right. to work. Yeah. It's your desire to learn. Yeah. So he put me on a machine right then and there. He's like, when can you start? I'm like, now. It's time to work. Right? <laughs> like, here to right work. Now. Yeah. So he walks me out there. He puts me on some machine and I start working and I already had a little bit of experience from, you know, three previous summers at that Howell Precision Tool. And uh, before the end of the day, I got a raise. Right. He's like, I can't pay you what I told you I'd pay you. I feel guilty. He's like, too smart for that. I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like it's OK. But, you know, so and then he and I are still great friends to this day. I saw him. I was in New Jersey a couple uh, uh, My dad died in September of this year so that, that took me to new jersey a couple times mm -hmm. late summer and mark and i got together and tried to solve the you know world you know the world problems world manufacturing problems yeah while sitting on his <laughs> while sitting on his boat he bought a nice big boat we were sitting and we had we were anchored up in the Masquan river and uh i don't know we probably went till two or three in the morning it was late that's awesome you know just but it was it was a good time good friends are important for sure, man. And it's I'm lucky. I got a lot of good ones. I got a lot of smart friends. Yeah. Well, I mean, and honestly, we're all business owners. <laughs> well, that's why I like. That's why I like talking. I I always like to talk to people such as yourself because I like learning things. I like to um, actually. I find my brain kind of uh, craving more knowledge. You know, at this point in time in my life, and I, I want to learn something uh, a little bit uh, deeper. We want. Yeah, it's it's important to be a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. I mean, what Agreed. do you? And especially now, I mean, I'd say I'd give anything to go through school again, but I probably wouldn't because I hated school. I, just, hated I, I, I lacked the discipline. I was a, I was a psychopath in college. I just, I could have gotten so much more out of it. But uh, I wasn't not like psychotic, like an axe murderer or anything like that. But right. just like, just, just completely not. It. Yeah, I get. I totally understand. Out of control. I, I was the same way. You know, you're twenty something. You all, all I cared about, like for me, all I cared about was getting to the goal that I had. I didn't have the. I didn't have a whole lot of true foresight into what was going to happen ten five five years down the road, ten years. I wasn't thinking that stuff, right? So, um, but nowadays, to go through an engineering education or an engineering curriculum today, with YouTube available to you. And all the great shit that's on YouTube, as that's like Grant Sanderson, three blue, one brown, uh, Eric Weinstein, who does a, he was, yeah, yeah, you probably heard of him. Mm -hmm. He's a pretty famous 
That depends on what circles. I mean, if you're into Kim Kardashian, you're probably not into Weinstein. <laughs> right. But nevertheless, I, I love the way I love the way he described uh, Grant Sanderson as a uh, national treasure. He does these wonderful math videos. That, okay. And and not only like he also the guys. I mean, hey, he's brilliant, but he's he's also smart in the way that. He, he's clearly identified what hangs people up in their education. Big thing with education, especially in engineering, is, uh, and you'll hear more people talk about this nowadays, like certainly Grant Sanderson and other people like uh, uh, Sal Khan from Khan Academy. Um, my friend Ken and I, we talked about this probably that's right after we met one another. Well, I don't know how long I've known Ken now, probably... Uh, I don't know, it's got to be 15 years at least. But uh, it's holes in your education. That's what we called it, right? You take math classes and you'd miss something and you wouldn't ace a test. You wouldn't ace the next one. You wouldn't ace the next one. And before long, you got this math education that's got a bunch of holes in it. it. So it's like trying to build a house on a foundation that is just structurally compromised. Hmm. You'll build the first floor. You'll build the second floor. You might build the third floor. But by the time you go to the fourth floor, your house probably going to collapse and you're going to die. Right, <laughs> right? Right, right. So that was a big one. You know, holes in the education. You do not, like as an engineering student, if with YouTube today, right, your, you know, your, your professors at most American universities are probably going to suck, right? Because they're not a lot, like, especially at Purdue. I don't, I can't tell you that I have any that I had any professors that I have fond memories of, like that were truly inspirational, mm. like literally none, zero. And which is sad. The, the, uh, I do remember my freshman year, I had this physics, this TA in physics, who had a foul mouth, a foul appearance, but the guy could teach. Right. And the faculty kind of didn't like him because of his mouth and his appearance, right. and probably because of his efficacy. Right, and in all right. likelihood, they were probably jealous of. Of course, that trips your shadow. Big yeah. Time. So, and and it was uh, for him. It just came naturally. He knew how to communicate these ideas. And but at the end of the day, like, what are you there to do? You're there to communicate information. And you and think the most... they were there to teach you, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. But they're also they got other problems like research and you know whatever it is they do. Mm-hmm. And it was sad because, uh, like Justin, who's sitting right there, you went to Laterno, where Laterno is a good school for cranking out engineers. You probably had better teachers, I would think. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, so that's a big one. So if you're in an engineering or a STEM curriculum today, uh, don't, don't leave holes. You know, make sure you got your shit locked down before going to the, going into that next exam. Mm-hmm. And today with YouTube, you know, young people today, if they're 20 something, they don't know a world without the Internet. Right. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's a lot better today than it was when I was growing up. I can only imagine. Yeah. It's like you now know. it's like YouTube University. Just if you want to learn how to do something, there's no like my kid, my kid's 11 and he picked up the guitar couple years ago or actually he picked up the guitar like last year year and a half ago youtube university he's just he has the talent he has the musical talent but then youtube university gives him the technical background of how to actually play 
and now like he's 11 years old and he's ripping Guns N' Roses and Eddie Van Halen and like full songs you yeah know. so so in the like in the hierarchy of occupations right rock stars number one right there's nothing better than rock star in my opinion <laughs> yeah. right? right and rock star is so far ahead of whatever's number two right like let's say astronauts number two and you're a rock star Right. If you're looking back at Rockstar, you think if you're looking back at, as Rockstar, if you're looking back at Astronaut, you can't differentiate between Astronaut and like, I don't know, like Ditch Digger or like you know, having to d dig a ditch and fill it back up again just for the sake of, you know, doing meaningless labor. Right. Right. Some ditches need to be dug. But. But that's just where I put rock star. Music's a wonderful thing. It is, man. It's really, it's, uh, if it kind of brings everything together. When you, when you see like a rock star on stage in their element, yep. I mean, they've got, they've got a stadium full of people mesmerized by, I mean, that's by a, them, by their yeah. existence. Yeah. Rock star is pretty cool. Yeah. So I would strongly encourage your son. Well, you've met him. To, to, yeah, yeah, to yeah, continue with the guitar. <laughs> He's pretty good. He's pretty damn good. My parents gave me a trumpet when I was a kid. <laughs> That's hysterical. Man. Guitar would have been better or drums. Yeah. But. So you so really like your engineering your engineering is it safe to say that you went into this because you wanted to build rifles? No. No? <laughs> no, I just went into I don't know what I, I, I was good at math didn't in know what high else school. To do. And a friend of mine told me, "Hey, you know, if you're good at math, you'd probably be a good engineer." Why don't you apply it to Purdue? I'm like, oh, all right. Now they did, got in, and it was basically kind of just like that. Got also on. applied to the Air Force Academy, but I got waiting listed. Well, I got accepted to the, they called it the Air Force Academy prep school. Mm. So it was like I would have lost, I say lost, but they say, here, go here first, right. see how you do, and then you'll come in. I was never a good athlete, mm. and those guys value athletics. Mm -hmm. I'm probably for good reason, but... And in hindsight, like I did want uh, back then, I actually did want to fly jets. Since then, I've been in many small airplanes and I avoid those like the plague now. <laughs> I have like three friends that are pilots. Yeah. And, or uh, or your pilot too? Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, I hate small airplanes. Well, number one, unless it's like, you know, nice level, easy flight. Yeah, I'm going to throw up. Right. Really? I get, okay. I get air sick instantly. Okay. If any anything above like one and a half G's, and okay. I'm like, no. Got it. Get me out. Hate it. Got it. So I don't like the, the whole dream of fighter pilot as a child. Would have it wouldn't have panned out anyway. Yeah. There's just no way. And not only that. Well, life might have been different in a military academy though. They might have beat the shit out of me and like beat me into manhood and beat me into maturity. <laughs> Instead, I, I'm, I'm only, you know, I got two sisters. So I'm like, a, and my parents are Greek. And I, you know, so I'm a spoiled Greek son, which is, and then I got to college and it's like, didn't, didn't go, like it wasn't, it, it wasn't what it should have been. Right. <laughs> right. If you're, if you're a parent, you probably don't want a kid like me in college. <laughs> <laughs> but what is well I, I don't know I think that um, what you've been able to bring though into the shooting community is a passion for rifles 
and obviously a very deep understanding of, of how they work through your engineering background. Well, I just had a thing for Mausers. And it just I was just lucky that Fred Wells liked Mausers as well, and I liked Fred. So he got me looking into Mausers, and then I understood Mausers. I'm like, well, once you understand those and you see what like Remington was doing with the 700 or Winchester with the pre-64, mm-hmm. or even ones like, the, who's that one? The, the Newton. Most people never heard of the Newton. Mm-hmm. I think it was designed by a lawyer, <laughs> right? It was actually pretty good. But Mauser did so many things correctly right out of the gate. And then, you know, th- that was like the standard for so long. Like the, the Springfield is just a knockoff of a Mauser, 03 Springfield. Mm-hmm. So even Newton used elements of the Mauser. And a lot of the, a lot of the, ex- a lot of the designs that became popular later in the 20th century were, you know, you can look at old, you know, prior art from Mauser mm-hmm. and see that he tried a lot of this stuff too. Mm-hmm. One thing about guns, nearly everything's been done. Not everything, but a lot. Yeah, no, you're you absolutely know? right, man. It's, it's, you can only, you can only do, what, you can only do so much. Yeah, so, know? so, yeah, so once, Things changed, I guess, with the advent of, uh, and this is not in any way a good history of the bolt-action rifle, but yeah, Mauser in 1898, hugely significant. Remington, I guess, in the 50s, mm-hmm. the 700, hugely significant because they, you know, these guys, they had to, you know, they thought about manufacturability. And it's like, okay, how, how, can, how can we do what we need to do with as little as possible? And given the technology at the time, it was like, Back in Mauser's day, I think it was 600 operations in a manufacturing line to make a Mauser rifle. Mm. Now, that would have included the stock, right? right. But And there's a, oh, God, what's the name of it? It's a, I think it's called like United States Machine Guns or something like that. There's a book. You can probably find a PDF of it. I think somebody just scanned the thing and put a PDF of it on, on, the, on, the, on, on uh, the internet. But there's a book, and I have it, it's on that computer, uh, that basically shows you how to make a Springfield rifle, an 03 Springfield, like it's, you know, 19, like, like it's before World War One, right? <laughs> no, that's cool. All, you know, all the tooling, all you know, the jigs, the custom cutters, all that. They go into all of it. And it's a big, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of work in there. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so Remington 700, again, we're jumping around a lot of tangents, but, yeah, 700, hey, how to solve the bolt-action problem, cheap. Right. You know, <clears throat> and it was great. It became ubiquitous. That's all good. We got a lot of respect for that, but it never had the functionality of the Mauser. Right. And then, and that, that was that until, literally, until we did the Archimedes. And that's, in my opinion, anyway, and granted, I'm, you know, kind of responsible for it and can toot my own horn here, but I think it's good. Like out of the three actions that we make, I'm I prefer to shoot the Archimedes. Yeah, and um, it's that that the pivoting a bolt handle and that that extraction mechanism. It's literally the only substantive improvement to bolt actions since 1898, as far as I can tell. If anybody knows of another one, you know, let me get let me know. And by substantive, and granted, there's other substantive substantive things that have happened since then that have helped that have moved along the development of guns 
you know, the microprocessor and CNC, obviously, mm-hmm. right? And the materials that we have today and the technology for, you know, processing materials like, you know, vacuum arc melted steels and shit like that. Those are, you know, and like, and uh, EDM technology, you know, we could do things like today that Mauser can only dream about mm-hmm. or couldn't dream couldn't about. Couldn't dream about because yeah, he had he no concept. Yeah, yeah, he didn't have it. No concept so, of what was, what was possible. I, I do, man. Like I've always the the I remember the first time that, that you and I met, you had the you had it was at Douglas Ridge and you had the M two out there. Yeah, that was a neat rifle. It was super yeah. cool. <laughs> and that was when I saw that, I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Cal Zant said it was the most innovative product at the two thousand fourteen shot show. Uh, Cal's from Precision Rifle Blog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He liked it. Yep. But it was a it was a bolt action. We still have it. But it's uh, you could you could disassemble the bolt and reassemble it with a handle on the on other the side. Other side. So you, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can go from a left a bolt a, a left-handed or a right-handed gun to a left-handed gun. And it, that was at that Sorry. point in time, I was like, okay, this is a, this is an individual that that needs to be paid attention to because there's going to be really cool things coming. Always wanted, I never wanted to do the same thing. Like I did want to make Mausers for a long time. That okay, nothing new there. You know, I would you know this was. 2003, I start, you know, putting a Mauser in a CAD system and trying to figure out how to make them. And then at the time, Granite Mountain Arms was doing it. I think Prechtel in Germany was making them. And uh, there was another guy, Empire Arms. Uh, he went out of business, I think. I don't, I'm pretty sure he's gone. And then, uh, but now you can buy a Mauser action from Mauser. And they're doing a, a beautiful job too. Like, like I'd seriously consider buying one of those. Uh, I, I saw a three-position tank-mounted safety on a Mauser, on a new Mauser made by Mauser at Shot Show, and I thought they did a wonderful job. I thought it was really, really good. There's another maker. There's another guy in the UK making Mauser actions. So for the guys that like, you know, the classic big bore. Yeah. African hunting yep. rifle. That's, it's always going to be the Mauser 98 yeah, on man. a, you know, American classic-ish style stock. Yep. And that's what those guys want. And that's all fine and good. But there were enough people in the game where I decided I didn't want to do it. Right. So, but I designed another, the first action I designed was Mauser-esque, right? It was a, you know, square bridge action with inter- dovetails cut into the square bridges it had a three-position tang-mounted safety. This patented trigger, it was my first patent. It cost me a ton of money. But <laughs> I learned how to prosecute a patent and learned how to deal with lawyers as well. Not always fun. Not always fun. Uh, but and my current patent attorney, I love him. He's a great guy. But uh, uh, but I shelved that. It just would have been too expensive. And t- today we could do it, especially with what showed up today. Mm-hmm. We've got a nice, like, new shiny machine today. I, I, I often, I'm like, man, I wish I would have gotten um, a long action of the original mousing field to do, a, like, a, a, a characteristic. Have some. Do you, if you guys still have sure. some, put me on, put me on the list because I would love to build a, a, a really a beautiful African rifle with a long action original mousing field. Because just the look of that first rendition, you know, is so um, characteristic of that type of rifle. Beautifully blued and, you know, it would be... Yeah, there is a reason people like those, right? They're kind of timeless and they are pretty. Tom pulled out a Seiko from his safe that he has. um, 
and the, those actions they're just beautiful there's just something to be said yeah about the, 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 oh, so the the reason why the mauser and it's not just mauser there's another one is like a man have you ever seen a man liquor show now yep mm-hmm. that's another one yeah they're but gorgeous. it's not it's not mauser's at the top there's no doubt about it the 98 the tops them all but the thing about the 98 there's it's as when it's stocked in wood it has a certain sound to it mm-hmm. when you cycle the bolt. Yep. And it has a certain feel and a certain clunkiness to it. Where that clunkiness just tells you, hey, this thing, this thing is designed for war. Yeah. <laughs> right? I right. mean, which is what and, yeah. and back then war sucked. It sucks today. It still sucks, but it sucks. Sucked, I'm sure it sucks worse. today. But the trenches of World War One had to be really fucking sucky. Horrible. Terrible. Mm-hmm. So but that thing, like that's why we run. I've always run, run sloppy bolts in all three actions, right? Because they run. Mm-hmm. But our competitors can point to that and say, "Well, you know, look at our bolts are nice and tight." And it's like, well, that might, and it helps. It probably helps them sell guns. I, it's you know, and there could be an argument that hey, maybe we should tighten up our bolts look, if that sell, helps sells more of them, sell more of them. But I legitimately give zero shits. If you're going to say that this custom action ran hard all day long in some dusty, dirty conditions at a little PRS match, I can give a fuck about that. <laughs> because there is something to be said for understanding like the true aspect of having a rifle that is designed to work in austere environments. And still yeah, have I would think the functionality. Put a little clearance between the bullet and the receiver. So, you know, there's... Because I, I am an infantryman. I understand what that life is all about. I understand that your rifle has to be able to work three or four days without cleaning it. You might not have an opportunity to do that. And everybody's, you know, you can say all you want. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, in the real world scenarios, there could be that time where I don't have time to clean this thing. And I, I need it to work. That's the takeaway from Mauser. Mm-hmm. That's why. That's why. And 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 the Springfield has that same visceral clunkiness to it. That mm-hmm. you know that sounds good in wood. And but that's why by the time the pre sixty four model seventy Winchesters came around, I mean there, there's companies that are building really expensive rifles on pre sixty four model seventies. I want to do it. Right. The bottom. And, and forgive me if you're out there and you've spent. You know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars on a pre sixty four model seventy Winchester, <laughs> you know, custom rifle that was built on that. But the the receiver of a pre sixty four model seventy Winchester, the bottom of it has been butchered, right? And the way the reason it was butchered, right? They put two slots in it, one for a bolt stop. If I remember, it's been a while since I've seen one, but I'm pretty sure I usually remember stuff like this. There were two. There were two. They, they brought two slitting saws into the bottom of the receiver at different angles, which just, in my opinion, just like created like. I mean, I guess a guy could argue it does. You know, it works. You know, doesn't matter what what it looks like or how it was executed. I would say yes. Right. <laughs> right. Steve Jobs used to give a shit about the inside of the computers that were being built. You know, before they got super thin and right. Right. If you took a remember those uh, Macs. There were like these bulbous yeah, looking the bulbous things that, that had you could like see inside of them. Yeah, yeah, and they had like an integrated monitor and mm-hmm. keyboard. Mm-hmm. Those things were as nice on the inside as they were on the outside because you could see it. Yeah, and, and it's a perception yeah, of quality. And so, and Jobs knew enough to know that hey, you know, if you execute your shit really, really, really well, 
people that that's only going to do things good things for you. Mm-hmm. So the things with pre, like with actions like pre sixty four model seventy Winchesters and even the Remington Remington did too, right? There's a slot cut into the bottom of the action for a bolt stop. Uh, there is, yeah. There's one for the bolt stop because it's actuated by that little piece of sheet metal on the side of the, tri- the side of the fire control. Correct, yep. And then there's another one for the. Uh, uh, no, it's just the bolt stop on the Remington. Just the bolt. Stop. Just just the bolt stop on the Remington. The Winchester has another one for the the ejector. Comes in as a spring loaded blade. Oh, right? okay. Yeah. The Mauser has a spring loaded blade as well, but it's integrated with this bolt stop on you know at nine o'clock on the back of the on the back of the action. Mm-hmm. Beautifully done, right? Not the friendliest thing to machine, but difficult to machine. Like I don't think the German people have i don't think they can put together a phrase that means difficult to machine i think (laughs) i think if they can imagine that they can make it right got a lot of after what showed up today uh we got a beautiful uh new cnc machine today a mill turn from germany and like we've got i hate all of my asian machines now i hated them before today but and I knew now I really hate now them. I really hate them like the Okumas and the Makinas of the world, you know you guys disappointed me, but I, I don't think I'm going to be disappointed by what just showed up today. Cool, big shout out to Index, and I gotta say I, I told the, the salespeople that I want to know their I don't know who their uh, their head of engineering is, but I want to send a nice message to all the engineers at Index because what they did. Is pretty epic. Yeah, I, I just, it's to me like it's so evident <laughs> that that thing was done correctly. And the the first time I realized this was um, I knew about it, like a, uh, it was a Z and X axis in an index lathe uh, called a C one hundred or C two hundred. They come two different sizes. And uh, I saw in a brochure that they had this 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 XZ mechanism on a single plane. Usually, you know, you stack one direction on top of the other direction. You got a set of bearing rails that one run in one direction and then offset from those is another set that run in another direction. So they combine this this sort of thing into one plane. They don't use bearing rails. They, they do it differently. And for a while, and this was when I was, you know, designing machines with Justin at EI and before Justin and I was were working together. I was working with other people at Electro Impact designing other machines. And ideas like this had come up before because you were always tortured for space, right? It wasn't the first time. I'm sure other people, not just Index, but other people had thought of this like, hey, it'd be, you know, cool to come up with a more compact design for to, to perform, you know, to get two directions of motion out of it. And, uh, and I knew kind of how, what they were doing and kind of what it looked like, but I didn't know how they were doing it. I thought about it for a long, long time. I never did figure it out. And then one time, one years back at IMTS, which is a big machine tool show they have once every two years in Chicago, I went to the index people and asked them to pull, pull the back panel of the machine off so I could look inside. And it was just beautiful. It was just like I instantly saw how they did it. It was this stupidly simple, elegant solution that is, those are like the holy grails of engineering, right? Like when when you you come up with a solution that where all the complexity is just like has evaporated away. And like the, it's just, 
the essentials and only the essentials are left. Like the two big rules in engineering, right? Good engineers never work alone and uh, good engineers do more with less. And that's, and that's that. Mm. And, and they, they epitomized that. So ever since then, I wanted a C100. Unfortunately, I didn't buy one this time. I wish I had. I bought a G220, which is even more expensive. Um, but that's because of the work statement, right? The C100 doesn't lend itself to what we need to do today, mm -hmm. where the G220 does. So that that's going to be an interesting deal. That thing is the new arrived today. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you look at you know the, the Germans. They, and the Swiss, and I'm sure the Austrians as well. When it comes to engineering and machine tools, and even automobiles, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I got just that's I don't know. I, I can look at that example and be happy. Sure, that people like that exist. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think sometimes um, a lot of people look at American rifle company actions and believe that, like some people, they just like really complex. They're not, though. They're not, though. No, they're, they're not, They're simple. Though. But if you compare it to something like, you know, an impact or a Lone Peak or, you know, that, that truly are just I saw legitimately Lone. Remington 700 clones that have some, that have just tweaks here and there to make it more smooth. I will say the Lone Peak is well executed. I believe so. I was actually I impressed by it. I saw one for the first time at a Shields in... Montana. Hmm. It was one of their titanium ones. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, uh, I thought it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> they are. You know? there's the problem, that, it's not even a problem. The reality of it is, is that the, the, the majority of modern rifle actions are really well done. And it's a lot of it is personal preference as to what it is that you like in terms of the feature set that you're getting. What is the feel? Like we talked about this earlier. A lot of times people gravitate towards how does this thing feel? Like what is it when I when I operate the bolt, what does it feel like? And is it um, does that like does that feel resonate with me? Yeah, so I always wanted to do something a little different. Granted, I started with a with Mausers and then finally decided, hey, I'm not gonna do a Mauser. I came up with a another Mauser-esque action, which was model one. Mm -hmm. That thing's still on the back burner. And then and then uh, it was Mark Gordon that convinced me to do a 700 footprint. So I'm like, well, I'm going to do a 700 per footprint. And I was working on Mauser-esque actions. So I had to put Mauser bolt in it because that hadn't been done before. So in that regard, it was a little different. But the mousing field wasn't really original in, I mean, it was just a combination of two things that had already existed, the 700-ish cylindrical receiver and the Mauser bolt. Mm -hmm. And the, the bolt wasn't exactly Mauser, but it right. was, you know, all the, all the key, key features were there, it, in particular, it, particularly with the extractor. A lot of people, like the Winchesters, like nobody ever really executed. Maybe they did, I don't know. But like I know Winchester didn't, and I know Kimber didn't. The, uh, they, never, they had never incorporated that little undercut. Uh, there's a tongue that engages a groove in a mousing field and in the Mauser. And there's this little undercut that when you when you retract the bolt and there's a sticky round in the chamber, the extractor gets pulled forward on the bolt and it, it engages some something, a little feature that that discourages the extractor from popping from popping over off. the yeah, popping off of the case rim. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so we, you know when we when we did the Mausing field bolt, you know, I was well aware of this stuff because of you know, I had this thing for Mauser. So, but yeah, and then the nucleus came around because we did a three lug just because, mm-hmm. and then but the, the I think the biggest mistake I made was not, and I say that you can't you can't live your life in reverse, but like the Mausing field was designed in 2013 and introduced in January of 2014 at the SHOT Show. In January of 2014, in the weeks, those couple, two weeks before the SHOT Show, that same year, we came up, well, I came up with the, uh, with the pivoting bolt handle for the M2. Oh, okay. It was first for the M2 because that thing had, because of the way the bolt handle fit into that that the bolt on that rifle it was just sort of like a natural extension it's like well why you know right okay so then a bunch of years go by and i finally got motivated to do the archimedes which is what i should have done from the start and had i done that the other actions would have never existed Mm. right because there's no i mean the archimedes is just as in my opinion now the heart wants what it wants and a lot of people still like the nucleus, which is conventional action. People like the mousing field, which is conventional action, right? The Archimedes is what it is. It's the only thing out there like it. And uh, it's, I, in my opinion, it's, it's better. It's the one I prefer simply because if you get a cartridge stuck, you can't get a cartridge stuck in it. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's, uh, and if your, your, your ability to extract a case in an Archimedes is limited only by the strength of the rim of the case. Right, mm-hmm. because you can easily tear the rim of the case off. Right, right. And it doesn't take. I mean, you got to yank on it a little bit, but like biomechanically, you can. Right. It's the way it works is just it just works well with your body. You're gonna open up a bolt and then pull it straight back into you, and you got something to react that force with, which is the butt of the rifle in your shoulder. Mm-hmm. It's just a natural way to pull out a case. So, and then we've considered things like straight pulls. Like if you look like at a Heim SR30, that's got, that's kind of a neat action. But if you look at if you look at the work statement, that is the bolt cycle. I think the best way to do it is rotate to unlock, and lever back to, to extract. extract. I don't think there's a, there, I don't think a more efficient way. I don't think there's any way that's more efficient, uh, or I don't think you can find a more efficient way to cycle a bolt. Right. If you look at like an, like an automatic rifle, right, and that's kind of how they work, right? They move the bolt carrier back, mm-hmm. which does nothing but rotate, rotate the, bolt the bolt out of battery, right, to unlock it. And then you have the rest of the gas impulse or that, that stored energy or the, the energy in the gas, mm-hmm. right, to basically drive it to the rear. Yeah, drive it to the end. But so you have, you got forced extraction there. And depending on what that, when that happens, right? It's all timing. Yeah, depending on when it happens, right? You've got the, the residual pressure in the bore that's going to try and pop the case out of the chamber, right? Right. So you can unlock those. Can't and, unlock it too soon. You yeah. If you have a short gas tube, right, on an AR, you're you're trying to unlock it when there's still a lot of axial pressure. force on the face of the bolt, right? And isn't that a problem with current? Uh, yeah. With the current M4, well, it's over. It's 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 unlocking. At during at too high a pressure is my yeah. understanding mm-hmm. of it. It's ammunition related. It's the new M855A1 ammunition that that is 
higher performance than the, than the previous generation. So why the hell doesn't the military just kind of buy rifles that with a gas block just move a little further forward? Or you just, yeah. <laughs> Why does the military do a lot of things? Uh, cool, because they're big and slow. and Right. That's hard, though. It's the military. I mean, you got to give. That's an enormous organization. There's huge problems in enormous organizations. Yeah, because everybody wants to get paid. Well, that, and it's just a hard part. It's just, you know, in all fairness to them, they're doing oh, something that's extraordinarily sure. difficult. For and sure. And they seem to be doing it pretty well. I'm, I'm, I'm referring yeah. more towards the, the acquisition side of the house. That's, that's now the, the procurement, the department that is the Pentagon. Yeah, that's where that's where things start to get a little sticky. There's a, there's a good book uh, called uh, Boyd, the fighter pilot that changed the art of war. Mm. There was a guy by the name of John Boyd, and he he raised to the he 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 rose to the ranks of colonel. He never made general, because at least in his own words, he hosed too many generals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was a fighter pilot first. He was pretty good. And he didn't do a lot of combat, but he was really good at, like, fighter pilot school. So good that they kind of kept him there to train other fighter pilots. Mm-hmm. So he did that for a while. And then after that, he went. He was in procurement in the Pentagon where he basically worked to procure fighter aircraft. And most notably, uh, the F-16 and the A-10, both very successful designs very successful to this airplanes. day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I think he worked with a guy... Another guy that gets credit for those. I think his name, if I get it wrong, I hope he forgives me, but uh, Pierre Spree, Spray or something like that. Uh, he, he's, he retired from the Pentagon. And then he, he got into like, uh, like high-end audio, like analog audio stuff. Mm. He's like sort of like an audiophile kind of guy. Uh, he started a business doing that. But he worked with Boyd to develop those two aircraft. And then after that, Boyd went on to kind of Sort of like the philosophy of war kind of thing, and at least according to the book, had a had was. In his Boyd's teachings influenced uh, Dick Cheney. Uh, Cheney learned of Boyd and his ways while he was a senator from Wyoming, I believe, and then later uh, Secretary of Defense was it during Iraq one. Uh, I think the story in the book goes. Uh, Schwarzkopf presented Cheney with a plan uh, was not like the was not in accordance with Boyd's philosophy if I can even credit him with it uh, the book does I'm just kind of par- you know going from the book here um, and then told uh, Schwarzkopf to revisit this and look at it in Boyd's way mm-hmm. which is what allegedly that's what happened uh, at least that's for the what first book asserts. Yeah, for the so they used kind of Boyd's teachings, but yeah, but Boyd took you in, or, or the book takes you inside uh, the procurement agency that is, or the procurement machine mm-hmm. that is the Pentagon, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, there's probably a lot of conflicts of interest there. Lots, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I don't. Like, I'm glad we have the military. We have, you know. Would would I want it to be more efficient? You know, who wouldn't? Of course, yeah. Right? You just wouldn't? you're going to want it to be the best that it can be. Sure. So you hope we can put the institutions in place. Mm-hmm. You know, to foster that. Yeah, weapons, weapon systems, and and things like that, especially from the sniper perspective. It just seems like those. It doesn't seem they do. They just turn the wheels turn ridiculously slow, 
And there is a lot of institutional inbreeding that is still largely in effect when it comes to weapon system procurement for long-range target interdiction. Well, you're, well, you were a sniper in the military, so. Yep. You know, you were in the Army, right? Uh, no. Or well, Marine Corps, I'm Marine sorry. Corps. Yeah. Yeah. Am I supposed to be sorry about that? Do you, like, if you're in the Marine Corps and you're, I'm so sure, you were in the I'm Army, sure, did like you guys ten, take a thumb? I'm sure 10 years ago I would have been all fucking hackers raised and shit, but I don't give a fuck right now. It's fine. Um, it's the truth, though. I mean, we're using, um, we just did a, we just did a training class and, and brought some guys up from, um, or well, from North Carolina. They came to Virginia, trained with us, um, and... They're still, they're literally using the same rifle, right? The same barreled action that I used 20 something years ago, and dudes 20 years before me used. They, they need to run a Xilo with an Archimedes. Well, they just don't know. Well, <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you? The, the, problem, <laughs> the problem that we see with this is that is there's, I think it's multifaceted. You know, you see, you see people that have. In, in the acquisitions that have um, that institutional inbreeding that's still very, very strong and powerful. You have industry relationships that are very, very strong and powerful. Is institutional inbreeding, is that deep state? Uh, it could be construed kind, as that. It's yeah, more it's along the lines of stage. like, well, what we use, we've used this for 20, 20 40, 40 years. Why, why do we need to do anything different? And it's a, it's a fear. I think it actually stems from fear. It, it stems from a fear of the unknown. It stems from a personal fear of admitting that there's things that you don't know. Um, and there's also, you know, tr- there's a lot of it is dudes trying to get jobs after they get out, you know. And so the problem with that is there's, um, there's, there's a lot of breaks in terms of, in terms of communication. And I, I, remember, I remember a situation where the M40A3 came out, right? It was this big thing where... We're getting a new rifle. We're going to get a new rifle for the Marine Corps, and it's not going to be the M40A1. And we were all like, "Man, awesome! Like, <laughs> what is this new thing that we're going to come up with, right?" M40A3, and it's the <laughs> M40A3, and it's literally an M40A1 with a heavier fucking rifle stock on it. And I'm just, and I remember looking at this going, it's "Like, is this the best we can do?" Right. <laughs> right. And so, Marine Corps Systems Command sent some representatives to the sniper school where I was teaching at the time, and I was young, full of piss and vinegar. I was a young sergeant. I was teaching marksmanship, and I was looking at this literally from the standpoint of this is insanity. Who thought that this was a good idea? And there was a couple of guys there from Syscom that were clearly retired former Marines that worked at Quantico, and um, they heard me bitching about it. And they were like, what don't you like about it? They're Sergeant Wojcik. And I was like, oh boy, let's do this. And I was like, why is this thing still literally antiquated? Why are we using this antiquated action when there's something like, why can't we just buy a turnkey solution like the AW? Why can we not do that? And this guy looked at me and said, this rifle beats the AW. And I was just like, okay, dude, this conversation is over. You and I are definitely not going to be able to communicate because you're either, you're either saying this because you don't know what you're talking about, or you're saying this because you know that this is completely the opposite and you're trying to save face. Right. Neither one of which is acceptable. Neither of which is Either you're lying or you're incompetent. Exactly. Right. I'm going to go with incompetent on 
on, on that side of the house. And I looked at him and I said, you cannot tell me that an Accuracy International AW against an M40A3, the M40A3 outperformed it because I'm going to call you a liar. I told that to him right to his face and my boss was like, you, you need to come over here because you're going to get in fucking trouble. And I was like, fuck that guy. And, you know, because <laughs> it was the truth. It was the total truth. And we're still dealing with that. I mean, we're making progress. Um, you know, we have we have the MRAD that's coming into, into play, which is definitely a step up because it's a modular weapon system. The guy can figure out, cater the weapon to his mission on his own. But there's even there's even issues with that too because now we're starting to get cartridges out there like the 300 PRC and the 300 Norma. Um, those cartridges you need to have knowledge of how those cartridges work and how they work with barrels, how to clean them properly, the maintenance issues that are associated with. Yeah, what was the deal with the 300 Norma? They were getting like drifting velocities or something with those. Is that true? I, you know, I don't know that all of the inner workings of the testing and things of that nature, but the 300 Norma came around um, because they were looking for a 30 caliber solution that was going to be easy on barrels and maintain 30 caliber. 30 caliber is this thing, right? 300 Norma doesn't strike me as easy on barrels. It, it's not. It's think. not. It's a not, lot of fuel behind a thirty caliber. Exactly, and the normal neck and the normal the normal shoulder angle is really what is what helps with increased barrel life, just from the shoulder angle itself. Um, but at that point in time, it's like, guys, why don't why are we why are we why are we doing this? Why don't we start looking at you know three thirty eights because you're there's a gap in here, right? There's a big gap in terms well, of. Well, what was ever you know, wrong with three thirty eight Lapua? Or Lapua. Yeah, great question. Like, great question. <laughs> I mean, isn't that, that what that whole thing was designed specifically it's for long, sniping? It's a long range. It's a true long range interdiction rifle. And that and and up until recently, we have not had that. The only the only military unit that had that capability was was SOCOM, and that was uh, the Mark Thirteen. That was uh, that ridiculously long twenty six inch barrel with another. 10 inch or 11 inch suppressor on the end of it and it was really one of those types of rifles that it was it was like hey we need to use this in an emplaced position or fixed position it wasn't really practical to be um, used in the assault just because of its size and its unwieldiness um, but it was great for obviously in a position where where you could you could truly utilize the cartridge to its capability um, but but it's like well why I don't understand why we just didn't look at the 338 in that regard. But again, and that's there's there's people that have their own individual agendas that that push these that push these projects forward that we just kind of look each other look at each other and go, how did how did we get here? Like how how are we here talking about this? This just seems like a pretty radical departure from what we really truly should be talking about which is having a suite of weapon systems that the end user, which is the sniper, who truly understands their own capability, if they're trained properly, to be able to say, you know what, I'm gonna take that one for this job because it's gonna be the best tool for the job. So we're getting there. I think we're, I think we're getting there. It's just, I'm looking at my watch going, it's taking a long time. It's taking a long time. Yeah, I, I, it just begs the question, when are we gonna get there? Mm. And yeah. I wonder why they can't be more nimble in the way they do procurement. 
or 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 are some or or some parts of the military actually are are there you know little groups within it that can be nimble well it's it, it, yeah just and, and those nim- yeah those those organizations you know have the ability they have the funding available to them and they just open purchase things they can say yep we like that so we're just going to go ahead and open purchase that it's not on contract it's not on contract so now we don't have to navigate and deal with the contractual issues associated with it the special forces foundation does a sniper comp at fort bragg mm-hmm. i think yep. it's in march this year mm-hmm. should go to that and uh I, I've, I've been to that once before years ago uh can't remember who put that on. It was it was always Special Forces Foundation. Mm-hmm. Those guys raise money for like the veterans that got you know blown up mm-hmm. or uh, their families. Mm-hmm. They're they're a good group. But uh, the, at uh, Fort Bragg would be a good place to oh, probably yeah. showcase some of this stuff and sure. see what these guys think. Sure, you know I'm kind of a fan of the CeeLo chassis and the Archimedes action kind put together. Kind of a fan. <laughs> I like the two together. They seem to work. I, I like them too, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to. Uh, I'm looking forward to competing. I was talking with Justin. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be using the CeeLo to compete on, you know, the more the the PRS NRL side of the house, and then I'm gonna be using, the uh, the KRG X-ray on the NRL Hunter side. Because it's a little bit, it's more modular. It's also lightweight. What's the weight limit for the NRL? Uh, open light is twelve pounds, and open heavy is sixteen. So, and that really, I think, is sixteen still reasonably light. It's still pretty yeah, reasonable. Well, by reasonably PRS light. standards, by PRS is. standards, you know, now we're shooting, you know, we're shooting rifles that are 20, 25 plus pounds, um, and we're going back to. The BRs, the BR variants of cartridges, little six millimeters. Well, in, in some ways, it's almost, you know, I don't want to say it's almost like bench rest, but like if you put a bag on a barricade. It's a bench rest gun. It's kind of, and the gun's heavy. Yep. You're kind of, you're kind of pushing it in that direction. Yep. And it's, you know, this is one of those things too that I've had, um, and I've been talking about it a lot lately because I was super resistant to accepting that this is the way it is and this is how the game's played because I was super I just remember at a point in time when I was getting into this game that as a practical slash tactical shooter, um, my rifle was right around that 15 to 17 pound range. Um, And then we would look at the bench rest guys over here shooting these 25 plus pound rifles with these tiny little six millimeter cartridges. They're fun to shoot. They're fun to shoot. Yeah, great. But we were just like, what are you going to do with that thing? Like, you can't do anything with that thing. And now, like 30 years later, we're gravitating towards those cartridges because of um, we're trying to push the envelope of capability when it comes to how fast can we hit targets. And well, if, if you can get points for a second round hit, right, mm-hmm. that's going to push you towards a small cartridge and a heavy rifle, right? right? Exactly. Because if, if you can only, if the, the, the incentives would be completely different. If, well, you still, even if you, like, even if you're shooting at multiple targets, even if you missed your, no matter what, you're going to want a heavy rifle. Yes, yeah, you want to, so. Because you're going to want to be able to see. I need to see. See your impact. I need fast. to see my impact, right? Yeah. And so with the BR variants and the very, and the short, you know, slower six millimeters, uh, I can pick up my trace with the bullet a third of the way from, from the muzzle. 
you know, to the target. I can pick it up and I can see it throughout the entire flight path. If you designed a match so that no matter what, if you missed, you couldn't see your impact, right? You know, I mean, if you could see your trace, that's one thing. But right. it, but it's hard to see a trace. Well, there, and there's and now because the shooting community has grown, especially on the rifle side of the house, so much, you can take your pick as to what type of match you want to compete in. If you want to do something that's really, really difficult and you only get one shot per target, go over to Competition Dynamics and shoot the Steel Safari and the Team Safari. That's their rules. It's it's hit or miss, move on, one shot. Um, and the targets are really small and they're all field in field conditions. And NRL Hunter is kind of trying to do that, um, but NRL Hunter gives you um, a follow-up shot. Now, different different types of PRS matches or PRS-ish, PRS-NRL type stuff, just all depends. Like you get one stage where you got to hit that target three times to move on, or you can, sometimes you hit it once and then you won't get to shoot it again. So that first shot is really, really important. What do you think of the prize table? At, at I think I think prize tables ruined ruined what we see now as com- as competitive shooting. I think the that the emphasis on prize tables. No, I'm interviewing you. That's fine. That's totally fine. <laughs> I think that the emphasis on on having huge prize tables. It's funny you ask. I'm just I'm writing an article about this right now um, for the Modern Day Rifleman Network, and I think that prize tables. I can see what guys were doing, like back in 2012, 2013, when this stuff started to really pick up steam, and it was getting more organized, instead of just a group of dudes going out into going out to Dur Road in Ellensburg and shooting together for the weekend and having friendly competition and. There was no prize tables. There was no yeah, trophies. Winning was enough. It was just if like you could win. Bragging yeah, rights. Just was, win. Who cares? That was worth yeah. more than anything else. Right. And so and it's like you know what? Next month that ain't gonna happen. Like you know what I mean? So a, a truth a trophy is proof of bragging rights. Right. It's yeah. one thing to win an award. Mm-hmm. That's why trophies have been around since the beginning of time. You right. you win a medal. Yeah. Right. You don't. It doesn't have to go bang. Right. <laughs> it's just like hey, this 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 proves that I was better than you on this day. Right. I think there's, I think it's a catch 22, right? So everybody has the different, the different perspective and you know, the lens that we look through is the perspective that we have, right? So for me, I can see that from my perspective that an emphasis on a big prize table, I I think it really kind of pollutes the spirit of the sport. For me, anyways, um, because you got people that are just specifically going to these events. Because let's face it, um, there's very few people in this industry, in the competitive shooting world, that truly get paid to shoot. That's all they do is get paid to shoot. I do, but I'm not. I'm not a professional competitive shooter. I get paid to teach people, right? So, competition for me is you know it's exposure. It's uh, relevancy, it's marketing, it's connection with our customers, and it's having fun, right? So I don't go to I don't go to shooting matches because the prize table is what it is. Matter of fact, I give my prizes away to people. Now I don't really, I don't need anything. Right. You know, I don't need anything. So, and this is more of like a, I guess like a, a um, you know a morality based thing for me, like. Selling stuff off the prize table, I think, really sucks. I, I don't think that's cool. But that's just me. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. 
I'm not going to look at you and say that you're a piece of shit because you sold something off the price. Well, yeah, that's I your mean, prerogative. If I want it, yeah, it's his to dispose it's of. Yours, it's it's yeah, yours to do what you wish, what, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, the the thing that you can't it, fault him for it. You can't fault him for it, I guess, because it's like, look, you know, the but, guy. But you can say it, cor- it can potentially corrupt the system. It absolutely can. It absolutely can because we're. I think we're now getting to this point where it's just like um, that person is then going to take that scope, like. Let's say they win a night force scope, but they shoot for loophole. You know, he's not going to shoot that rifle scope. He's not going to shoot gonna that knife force. He's going to sell it, right? <laughs> and he's going to sell it low so that way it can move because the, the guy or gal is trying to recoup their, their fees to go shoot. The problem with that is when we say, I should, I, I guess... We get arguments with who gets to walk the prize table first and how match directors do it. And, and this guy shouldn't be able to walk the prize table because I should be, I won and I should be able to do this because I need to recoup my fees. And guess what, dude? I give zero fucks about your needs. I really don't care. The, what, the people that I care about are that bottom 95% because those are the people that this community grows from. Those are the people that are feeding this machine that we all participate in, right? Those are the comp- those are the people that are contributing to the economy of the precision shooting world. I'm not going to sit here and you know I'm not going to sit here across from you and and be virtuous, but I've been doing this for 20 years, right? Like I've been doing this for 20 years. I've amassed a ton of shit. I don't need all this stuff, right? So I either go buy it or I go buy it. So. When, I guess for me, it's just like, I don't need it, so I'm just going to give it to somebody that does. And I always keep my eye out for people at matches that are either struggling with gear or they, that they need a little bit of help or whatever the case is. And whatever I pick up, I, I give to them. So people have asked me before, you know, hey, why don't you have a bigger presence in PRS? And my short answer to that is I don't want to pay people to use my product. Bingo. Right? Because if you give me money for one of my products... I want to do a good enough job on that product so your ownership of that product is pride or, and, and proof yep. that you are smart enough to pick the best one. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. It's in my mind, it's like, yeah, you, you, you go with anything that American Rifle Company is making. Apart from maybe the magazine. So love hate with those things. <laughs> They're great sometimes, other times. You know, I learned but, a lot about magazines working for Magpul. Magazines can be <laughs> tough, but but the, the, my point is that what you know any of the actions and certainly the scope rings on the the new embrace. If you buy one of those, I, like I want the product to to be proof yeah. that you understand the, the best product in its in in the, in its in sure. its space. Yeah, right. It's. I just, I hate the idea of, like, have I given away actions? Yes. Sure. But the only reason I've given them, the only people that get them are, like, you've, I believe you've gotten them. I've, the, the, the one action that you gave me a discount on was the original mousing field. Did I give you a discount or did I give it to you? You gave me a discount. A couple of people have gotten free ones, but in all cases, they are basic, they're basically collaborators. Like during development, mm-hmm. you know, I let them in on the secret that, hey, I'm working on something. Mm-hmm. 
And then because I need their input. Well, that's a so that's a that's a relationship that you're that you're leveraging, right? Yeah, I mean it's, they should have something in return. They're sure. gonna take time with it and kind of you know. But it's like, but there's a difference between saying you know I'm gonna what you're I'm gonna put that American Rifle Company logo on my shirt, right? And and that you know what I mean. It's just like that's different. There's a different aspect. I mean Nike, you know, they didn't give Michael Jordan shoes, right? They gave Michael Jordan millions and millions of dollars, <laughs> right? The yep. shoes were incidental. I mean, right. Michael Jordan could win playing barefoot. Right. He just needs a couple of sweatbands around his ankles so he don't slip on the floor. Mm-hmm. But that guy was going to win no matter what. Yep. You know, doesn't matter what shoes he was wearing. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing. When, but when, what they're, they're paying him to be an ambassador. For that brand. For that brand. Yep. Right. And yeah, you can kind of say the same. Now, do the top level PRS shooters function in that capacity? I'll tell you what, man. I don't know. I'll tell you what. I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna ruffle some feathers, but there's some there are many people out there that if if I witnessed the behavior and I was your marketing manager, I would fire you immediately. I, I probably shouldn't name names. No, no, no. But I'm saying but, you don't have to. You right. don't have to. Um, but see, like I don't. I'm not going to hide behind a meme page either, right? I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna call it like I see it. There's a lot of behavior out there that is tolerated, that super sucks, and it just is what it is. Yeah, I've seen people. And I, I haven't shot many matches. I've shot two mm-hmm. actually, and at one of them, I saw a shooter, a spon- sponsored by somebody reputable appeal for additional points and get them and i was like what the hell what can i have more points yeah it's like, it's like what, what i mean yeah. it's like what what i don't get that, that there's this that, ar- there's this arbitration period yeah th- th- that to me yeah. is a was sort of a problem yeah. you know <laughs> it's kind of a problem yeah that yeah. doesn't and uh, my friend keith sanderson he's he's competed in three olympics He's got a bunch of World Cups, and he's, I think he's, he might be reigning national champ at Camp Perry for shooting 45s. Hmm. Uh, he's like, he, he is, is, like his pet peeve is, or his lack of fairness at competitions, right? And he, he's got very, very, very strong opinions about how, uh, uh, like a, a competitive event of any kind right. uh, should be judged. Like uh, just talking about like Olympic sports, like gymnastics and diving, where you have judges. Right. Right. Where the, now there's this thing, there's a subjective thing to it. Mm-hmm. And even like if you look at MMA, you know, or any com- combat sport, they're often like, you know, people are like, you know, do not let it go to the judges. Right, because if you, if you let it go to the judges, now it becomes subjective. Right, you know, if the guy is knocked unconscious and he's on the ground or on on the mat, there's no doubt as to who won. Yep. Right, yep. Mm-hmm. it's that 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 objectivism, or, or people who organize competitive or any not just any any competitive sport to the extent possible should be designed to. As so that the outcome is objective as possible, of course, right? Now that might now that's going to be hard. I'm not going to say, hey, that's super easy to yeah, do. It's not easy to do. It's but, not at all. But certainly, appealing for points, I don't think is part of that, <laughs> right? Right. When you've got you know 
ROs that are there and they're watching, hey, these people are to be trusted. If we've entrusted them, it's like, hey, their word must be final. And then for a competitor to say, well, and here's the other, here's like, the thing. With why don't you take it up with the RO right then and there? This is, this is, this, this is my problem so, with, with having quote unquote ROs at a shooting match. ROs are basically people that volunteer their time to go stand behind a spotting scope all weekend long. Yeah, right. They're going to make mistakes. Well, not only are they going to make mistakes, but ROs are hard to find because most people don't want to do it. They'd yeah. rather shoot. Like their weekend is valuable to them. So basically, what we need is a reliable electronic target. You need you need something. I mean, look, guys, it's right. not. I mean, something everybody that can actually register a hit I've, electromechanically. You look at an organization like 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 Competition Dynamics, the Steel Safari. There's no ROs. It's self ROed. The RO, like if you were shooting in front of me, you're my RO. And is, then there, I, is there cheating? No. There's only been one instance. Where somebody got caught, it's not you. You can't. You can't really cheat, right? You can't at the at the competition dynamics event. There was one guy who tried, and Zach and Ray were like, "Really? Are you like for serious?" That's the only time. There's all kinds of problems well, with cheating in, yeah, in NRL and shoot, PRS matches. When I used to shoot NRA high power, I mean, you could work. I never did it, but that. Uh, and I don't know of people that did it either, in all honesty. I, I never, I guess everybody pull, eventually you pull for everybody, right? And your community. Oh, pulling the butts. Yeah, yeah, butts. yeah. yeah. You, you were pulling part, yeah, because you were down in the pits. And you didn't know who you'd pull for. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't know the person, I mean, you weren't going to. You weren't going to stab a hole in the five ring. And, yeah, it's like, and, well, there's and the, the hole, the there's the shot five. spotter. You know what I mean? Right, like, yeah. yeah. So... And the other thing about the pits was like you'd be motivated to to you know patch up that hole and, and get it up and, as and fast up, as possible because you want good pit service too. Yeah, yeah. So it, the incentives were yeah were usually lined up, and it was the same. Like you'd see similar levels of performance from all the competitors, mm-hmm. you know, time mm-hmm. after time. Well, so so the thing with but the, that, but again that was like self ROed as well. Right? I don't believe that we need ROs, man. I don't think so. And I, and people argue it. You should you should design a match or design a competitive event. When when we do it, we're gonna we're gonna do it the right way. And what I mean by that is not not saying that people aren't doing it the right we're way. We're do your best anyway. We're gonna do our absolute best to do it our way, and. We need, we're, we're just, we're looking for a venue. It's all timing. It's all timing, right? So we will. Um, but I personally believe that we don't need ROs. Um, it's just, it's unnecessary. And um, I think a lot of times, because match directors are always complaining, well, we don't, we can't find ROs. We can't find ROs. Guys, come on, man. Like, you know, you should have like two people behind. Everybody has binoculars with, on their $1,500 tripods that they're using to observe everything that happens on that stage. You mean to tell me that you can't take two dudes that rotate every stage from one squad to say, okay, Justin and Ted, you guys are calling hits for this stage. And if you guys disagree, then you'll figure, because ROs are doing the same thing. And a lot of times these ROs aren't very experienced. Because they're either learning, they're like, hey, go RO a match so that way you can learn. It's like, wait a minute. What's the most important part of this match is making sure that we're getting the accurate score on the target. What happens when uh, two people with an adversarial 
relationship are on the same, you know, you got one, two guys don't like each other, one, and, they're, and they happen to have to, one has to RO for, for the other. Well, I mean, it's the same thing. It's just like the target either gets hit or it doesn't, man. I mean, you know, a lot of times with these smaller six millimeter bullets that we're seeing nowadays, the deeper targets have to yeah. have hit indicators on them. Um, but it's pretty straight up obvious if you hit a piece of steel at 800 yards and in, you know what I mean? Even with a six millimeter. So I just, and I think a lot of times people think that we need those, those officials because the argument it is, is like any high level sports game has officials, right? Or officiators. And it's just like, well, guys, I mean, we're not, we're not on, this isn't the PGA tour. You know what I mean? Like we're still growing. Okay. We're still growing in terms of. It'd be interesting to figure out how to design a, 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 a uh, like a competitive shooting event that's as objective as possible. It's, in, in the spirit of P PRS, though, in that sort of practical rifle mm -hmm. kind well, of deal. I think it, I think really it's just it comes down to. Um, I want to know how to do it. Well, <laughs> it just comes down to just getting a bunch of. It just comes down to getting a bunch of humans together that um, are all trying to work towards a common goal and and have a good time doing it. So it's not always a super easy thing to do. They I mean, like, just a rule change. Uh, NRL Hunter threw out a rule change um, that they were gonna they were gonna allow teams to compete, and then initially the teams had to use an open light rifle, right, twelve pounds or less. And then they realized or the the officials at NRL Hunter realized that okay, well, let's maybe open this up to sixteen pound guns now. Um, you would have thought the world was ending. The, the amount of commentary that people threw out there of these rule changes and how they just spent all this money on these guns and now I don't have to and you guys cost me a bunch of money. It's just like, oh my God, guys, come on. Let's get over yourselves. Let's, who cares? Big deal. It's not, the difference between a 12 pound gun and a 16 pound gun is not gonna make or break you winning or losing this match. It's not happening. Because just like you said, Michael Jordan doesn't doesn't matter what kind of shoes that guy okay. wears. He's going to win. Just like a really good shooter is going to be able to shoot whatever rifle is handed to them and they're going to be able to do well with it. A high an upper level shooter is going to be able to run a 12 pound gun just as as well as he can run a 16 pound gun. Firmly believe that. Yeah, that's interesting. And this all started with a prize table question. Yeah. No, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of discussions that need to be had in that realm. And that's fine. It's cool. It's growth. And um, it's uh, it's managing. It's really just managing personalities and, and trying to find common ground. So. What's next? What's new for American Rifle Company and what's coming, man? What's mm. going on? New facility. New building as well, yeah. New facility as of uh, May. Mm -hmm. We moved in here in May. We have got a lot more space. Uh, su super significant new machine today mm -hmm. to make. Uh, we're going to use that to streamline uh, the production of actions. And the, so the the work statement that's going into that is basically bolts. So we basically purchased the machine that can make bolts literally in the best way possible mm -hmm. the bolt group which consists of you know in the case of the archimedes it would be the head the, the bolt body the shroud the handle and the cocking piece mm -hmm. um so we figured hey if we're going to make the best action in the world we we might as well make it on what what is quite literally 
the best machine tool in the world, which is, you know, of, of this type of machine, we spared no expense. <laughs> right. We couldn't. The only way we could have spent more money is to is had we done uh, had we made less of an effort in our negotiation over price. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's about mm. we couldn't have picked the machine that was any more expensive than what we picked. But they're expensive for good reason. Sure. At least that's my bet. Of course. Uh, and I figured, you know, yeah, they're, they're yeah, this one, this one was what, a quarter million bucks over whatever's in second place. So we'll see how it works out. But kind of excited about that. That was delivered today. Uh, the scope mount, uh, the accessories yeah, the we were before we started this, mm -hmm. we were showing you the, the, the additional accessories that are yeah. coming, which is love the embrace, man. Love it. It's it's a it's an awesome piece of gear and yeah that was a that, that to, in my mind anyway that is a scope mount done right <laughs> because and thanks to you it, it happened literally because of you you weren't running our previous one and i asked you why and you said that i didn't give you a means of to mount some accessories yeah yeah so now i did and uh that's it and i think we did it better than it's ever been done i i would agree with that would absolutely yeah, because we, we addressed the loads, right? Mm -hmm. and these are the forces involved, and what's the best way we carry it? Giving our what's the best way we can carry those loads, given given our circumstance. So, yeah. So, and uh, th these were promised to people a while back, but before this podcast, we were looking at the our uh, the CAD screen where mm -hmm. we've got the accessory for the HUD, mm -hmm. the accessory yep. for the uh, what's the other one? ACI. We got the HUD, the ACI. And the a forty-five degree offset, a forty-five degree offset, mm -hmm. which I don't know what the hell people are going to do with, but do, throw do an we, offset red dot on there. Do we need to? Do they? Yeah, I guess people do that. But mm -hmm. um, I was asking my, my friend Aaron about that, and he's like, "Well, if you have the LRF, they can just put it up at twelve o'clock." Correct. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of different ways that you can do things and and, and work things. Yeah, but I guess we can do a forty-five degree offset if we should. I don't. Do you think we should? Um, it's. I mean, depending on how you're gonna, depending on how you're gonna set your rifle up, um, the forty-five. I like having a, a an offset red dot, especially for a rifle that's gonna serve multiple multiple roles or capacities, which might be a little bit limited in terms of how many of those you're gonna sell to the general public. Yeah, I guess if we make them and we sell them all, great. If if not, we just won't make them again. Right. So yeah, exactly, that might not be able. We'll put it to the Lindy's test, the Lindy effect. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. if it's on the menu for a long time, it's going to stay on the menu. Right. And this will be a new menu item. And if you know, if it doesn't move, we'll take it off the menu. Right on. But the the scope rings have been on the menu for a long time. Dude, They'll continue to be. Yeah, I mean, I don't. There's no honestly, guys. I don't think there's a finer. I don't think there's a finer scope mounting system out there. I don't think there is either. What I really, what we need to do is a cantilevered, you know, an embrace, a cantilever type embrace for, for the for ARs. AR for the LVPO side stuff, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've always hated cantilever mounts because I've always thought, said that, yeah. Yeah, because so there's, okay, now admittedly, there there is a place for it. There is a place for a mount with some cantilever because of the short pick rail on top of the AR mm -hmm. receivers. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to bridge the gap between right. the receiver and the forend. I get that. However, some people do a cantilever mount that is so ridiculous 
that like like we can never put an American Rifle Company logo on something <laughs> that stupid, right? So basically, what they're doing is you've got this uh, this section that, that interfaces with a rail. It's mm-hmm. basically a rail clamp, and that the very front of the rail clamp is the rear ring, right? Right. Yeah. And then th- you know four inches in front of that is the front ring. Yeah. So your scope is basically carried by the rear ring. Yeah. And now your scope is effectively supporting the front ring. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because it's like. It, well, and granted, together, no, it's true. They're gonna, they will work it's, together to some extent, but it, it is we, just such a piss poor way of doing something. We do. Like, we see a lot of shooters now putting their hands on on scope objective rings, right? In yeah, positions. That's, yeah, that's not going to be good for one of those crazy cantilevers. So what we did is we had students do that in class. We said at the hundred yard line, I want you to pull on that scope in your position and shoot a group. We saw up to. A mill and a half. Yeah, that reminds me of one time you and I, it wasn't where you shoot currently, but it was at this other, This it was a cold, windy day. It's just you and oh, I. Oh, at Linda's there. place out at uh, yeah. Hanford. Yeah. But you were shooting, you had an AR-10 platform. It wasn't a 223. It was a bigger one. Mm. And I told, I remember telling you to load the bipod. Yeah, yeah. At a, at a target, you were, it was a plate that was at about 450 yards. Yeah. And uh, and it, like lo and behold, now you're shooting low. Mm-hmm. So yeah. those forces all those moments matter, yeah, <laughs> right? especially do. in an AR. Yeah, well, in a yeah. scope, you're you're when you pull on the objective, you're inducing mechanical parallax. And some guys, some scopes are worse than others. Um, obviously, the the longer objective housings are way worse than others, especially like the the collis, because there's a lot of there's a lot of lever arm there. The Leupold Mark V is a lot of lever arm. And you can see up to a mil and a half worth of variance by just pull just putting your hand on that objective lens, and those bullets go someplace else. Yeah, I mean, if you yeah, for every yeah, single a, student experienced a shift, every single student experienced a shift, and every single one of them was like, whoa, whoa, because there's this almost there's this mentality now where we see people that when they miss a target, they literally refuse to believe that it's anything that they could have done to make that happen. Right. So what I tell people or people are like, hey, oh, man, the wind stopped on that target. Just like, nah, dude, that target's way too big for you to miss it with the wind stopping. So if you actually gone through and identified at that range, what mile per hour wind value moves your bullet X amount of distance? Number one. And number two, if I put you in that same exact scenario and put two minute of angle dots at 100 yards, if you can clean those two those two minute dots at a hundred yards in this exact scenario, then I'll believe you when you say that potentially the wind stopped and that's what caused you to miss. But until that happens, dude, it's you. I mean, the, the rifles are so, if you did everything that you were supposed to do and set your rifle up the way it needed to be and, and validated the trajectory and got everything talking the way it's supposed to, you made that thing miss, right? So they're, they're inanimate objects. And yeah, and, and forces deflect materials, right? I mean, uh, they're all elastic materials, and if you push on them, they they will deform mm-hmm. to some to yep, some to some degree. Yeah, and 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 in long range shooting, if you're trying to shoot a target far away, what's so you told me this uh, a half a minute at a hundred is equal to three thou at the buttstock. I think so, right? Because yeah, would we, be, uh, we did yeah, the math it, on that. Yeah. So three thousandths of an inch yeah. equals a half of an inch 
at the hundred yard. I think that we can do it really quick, right? Because it's. Uh, I'm glad you can, because I can't. Well, let's just assume. <laughs> let's just assume that the distance between the bipod and the butt is 24 inches. Okay, that's right? that's a that's pretty decent. So it's just similar triangles, right? So uh, a minute is one inch 047 at 100, right? And then uh, what did we say? It's 3600 inches, right? So mm -hmm. one inch. So we're gonna divide. We're gonna take 24 divided by 3600. And then multiply that number by one inch 047, right? Is uh, well, I, right now I'm coming up with uh, seven thou. So seven thou. Yeah. Okay. So we're 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 a couple thou. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah. If you nudge the butt, yeah. seven thou. Yeah. If your bipod, let's assume you're fixed at your bipod. Yep. And you just nudge the butt of the rifle by seven thousandths of an inch, which is about two human hairs. Yep. Right. There goes your minute. There, there, there's your hat. Oh, your no, wait. That's one minute. That's one that's minute. That's one minute. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, divide that number by by two. Yep. Right? And yeah, half a minute is 3.4 thou. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or 3.5 thou at... at uh, yeah, so come on, guys. Let's yeah. let's be realistic. Well, yeah, when people say, oh, I got that gun shoots quarter minute all day long. Yeah. I'm like, I'll bet you a thousand... I'll bet anybody. One thousand dollars. You know, I've said this before, too, but it, it'd be stupid to take this bet, right? Because <laughs> there's no way you're going to do it. But shoot, you know, shoot a five-shot group at 100. That's a, a genuine quarter inch on, right. on demand. Right? It's like, go ahead, go. True quarter inch. Mm -hmm. Good luck. Yeah, it's, that's a tough one. I think I've done two in my life. And they're probably lucky. Well, they were, they were certainly lucky. Well, there was nothing probably... I mean, it, yeah, it was... It wasn't, it was literally probably luck, right? Because right, there's probability in luck, right? right? So it was like, it was luck, right? You know, now half minute, I had worked pretty hard and get those pretty often, sure. Yeah, yeah, but well, you, you got to do, do a lot, right? To today's get modern rifles and you know, modern machining, it's that's pretty much that's pretty much standard now, so but yeah, so well, this is a good time, man. This is yeah. a good, good conversation. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me here, and um, I'm looking forward to, to to coming back and making some more trips over to to do more of these. You're so close. It's like, yeah, yeah. So there's more to come. We'll see. Uh, we're always working on new stuff. Can't really tell you exactly what right now. Uh, you know about some of it, but uh, yeah, that'll get introduced here someday. Yeah, hopefully, if it all works like we hope it will. And uh, we're happy with Embrace. And, you know, want people to buy them. They're gonna. Yep. It's nothing but happy customers. Yeah, so if you're far. looking for a Unimount, man, that's that's where it's at. And at two hundred and seventy nine bucks, is it? Yep, that's, that's like, cheap. Yeah, that's for what you're getting. That's pretty damn cheap. Yeah, and you're not, and you can't. I'm not sure you can get anything better at any price. Mm -hmm. Well, I know you can't. <laughs> Which is why you get it, right? So, well, cool, man. Yeah, right yeah thanks well, for coming by, man. Not a problem. Not a it's problem at all. Not a problem. All right, guys. Well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. And you guys know the drill. Until then, keep your face in the gun and shoot well.